Hey everybody, this is Brad from Awake America and Hope from History. Last week's episode was so good as we interviewed retired Army Captain Scott Miller. We wanted to put the whole thing together just really in its raw form before you. So this is just an amazing opportunity to get an inside perspective on what our soldiers go through on the battlefield. We as you know, individuals, uh, we talk with soldiers, and of course we respect them and, and we honor them, but it's really hard to understand unless you're in the situation that you know they sacrifice. They didn't make the ultimate sacrifice, praise the Lord, but they have to, uh, they've been fundamentally changed in a way by the things they've seen, uh, uh, maybe physical trauma, mental trauma, emotional. And so uh, to help us with this, we have a guest today. Yeah. Retired Captain uh, Scott Miller is uh, on the phone with us. In and, the Army. Uh, in the Army, that's right, not the Navy, the Army, uh, the best branch of the military, right, Scott? That's right, that's right. And so, uh, Scott, how long did you serve in the uh, Army? Well, I, I've got uh, 20 years total. I've got a combination of both uh, of National Guard, Reserve, and Active Duty. And uh, my total time is uh, is, is 20 years uh, uh, all through. I actually did about 24 uh, total, but uh, with uh, National Guard and Reserve, it's different uh, time set and whatnot. So anyway, it's a total of 20 years even that I've actually got out as an active duty soldier. Well, th- first of all, thank you for your service. And um, uh, what a blessing it is just to have men like you that would be willing to serve. And praise the Lord that you made it back because you were over in um, – over in the Middle East during our recent wars. Can you kind of tell us just maybe uh, how many years you spent over uh, overseas and what your role was? Well, I was an embedded trainer with the Afghan Army. That meant that uh, I actually lived with and trained uh, the Afghan soldiers to stand up their army. How was the food? Uh, I, how was the food over there, Scott? Actually, you know, um, a, a lot of people got sick from the food. I did <laughs> not. I, I I, I contribute that to the years that I had to suffer with my sisters learning how to cook. Oh, my soul. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, hope I hope she's not listening today. Oh, both my sisters. I tell you, they, they were a mess. Uh, we had to eat. My family was not very well off. We we were poor, per se, but we whatever was put in front of us, we had to eat. And, oh, when they so were learning how to cook. So you did that in Afghanistan. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. So when I was in Afghanistan, I actually enjoyed a lot of the food. Um, they have this bread that they have over there. It's called naan bread. And it is, it's is—it's a flatbread. And it, it is fantastic. It is one of my favorite things that I remember about Afghanistan. So what was it? Uh, so you're over there. How, how long were you over there again? I was there three weeks shy of a year. Okay. And so you're over there. What was it that you did on a daily basis as a captain? What was your role? Well, I was on a team. We were supposed to have 11 people on our team, but we only had we only had eight. And uh, we were to retrain the soldiers. We, we, we literally got them from basic training uh, when they did their basic training, which is a lot more um, relaxed than ours. Uh, theirs is three weeks long. Ours is, is eight weeks long. And uh, then we literally uh, would train them how to do, you know, things that soldiers would do, uh, three to five second rushes, how to how to zero your weapon, how to uh, do a formation, uh, how to go out and, you know, do um, 
your your combat uh, routine kind of thing, you know, how to search a building and that kind of thing. And we did that for like anywhere from uh, two to four weeks, depending on um, how good these soldiers were. And then we literally started doing missions, uh, going outside the wire and going patrolling and, and looking for bad guys. Now, Scott, your, your time there was cut short. You, you had an accident is, is what I've been told. What, what happened there? <laughs> it's uh it's kind of comical, really. Um, I, because we were a short team, it was usually me and one other NCO, and I would go out with uh, the, the soldiers. I was an infantry uh, captain in the Army, and we would go out and patrol anywhere from, oh, five days to as many as uh, two weeks, depending on, on what uh, what was going on, what the information, the intel we had received on in an area. And, um, you know, I think the longest mission I did was 30 days out. Uh, I was out for 30 straight days. But most of the time, as like I said, between, uh, you know, five days and, and two weeks in that range. Uh, we would go out and we would go to different villages uh, that we'd gotten intel from that had Taliban or had suspected Taliban smuggling uh, inf- um, weaponry or, or smuggling in uh, fighters uh, to villages and whatnot. And whenever we went to a village, um, the village elders were, were happy that we that we came, and um, they were like almost begging us to stay when we would start to pack up to leave. Um, they did not like the Taliban there. They, the majority of them did not. Uh, the Taliban are very oppressive. Uh, they were very oppressive to women, especially, but not just to women, to, to all people. Uh, they would come in and take the young people and, and force them to be soldiers. Uh, for them, uh, they would they would take money from them. They would take food, uh, and without paying for it, they would just you know take things. So when we were getting ready, when we were getting ready to leave, they would come over and try to you know bribe us to stay, and we couldn't. We had to leave, and it was it was uh, almost comical um, the things that they would offer and whatnot. And that's not quite the picture we get from you know the American media, but you know you having been there and seeing these people who are, I mean. They wanted liberty just as much as anybody else, it sounds like. They, they really did. I, I had an interpreter that was an Afghani um, native, and his name was Ajmal. Ajmal would, would you know, keep me uh, from saying things or doing things to offend the village elders or, or people and whatnot. And um, when I started giving things out, people were just, you know, I, I, I'd give something away, you know, that we were, we were allowed to give out, you know, whether it be food or, or sometimes it would be clothing or sometimes it would be, um, you know, something to endear the people so they would know that we're there to, for, for good. We're not there to just, you know, uh, to, to take over their area and um, to be an invader per se. We were there to show them that the Afghani soldiers are there to support them and protect them. And the, um, the people were were very very glad, and they would they would do all kinds of things to uh, try to keep us to stay around. Um, so what, what happened when was, Scott with the with the as you were you know, going out there and in the villages and you know the people are wanting you to be there, um, then the accident comes in where you um, we, we just was it a, on a drive or what, what was there some kind of attack? What what happened with all of that? Yeah, well, okay, like I said, it was just me and one other NCO. His name was Sergeant Wayne Cornell. Uh, he was an E-5, and, um, and and we would we did a lot of missions together. He, he was the one I went out mostly with. Uh, every now and then I'd go out with somebody different, but uh, 80% of the time he was the guy that I did missions with. 
and we became very, very close. It was we were like brothers almost. It was just uh, we became very, very close. Um, one particular time, I was driving a Humvee, and I got cut off by a jingle truck, which is a, a big uh, truck that they have over there. They have all these these uh, beads on the side that make these jingling noises. That's the name, the jingle truck. And the jingle trucks were they're they're you know eighteen wheelers they had over there. They weren't really eighteen wheelers, but that's the best analogy I can give them. Uh, they just they transported all kinds of equipment or supplies or, or clothing or you get the idea. They they were transport vehicles. Right. And uh, I got cut off and I I ran into the side of a bank where all this dust just covered Sergeant Wayne Cornell who was in the turret with uh, with our machine gun. And he was just covered with, with this dust. And I felt terrible. I mean, I just, I got out to make sure he was okay. And So you ran and, you uh, ran into the bank or you ran into the bank? <laughs> I ran side, kind of sideways into the bank, oh, you know. Okay. Okay. And uh, he got covered. I didn't damage the vehicle, praise God, you know. And uh, he was covered. And he was, you know, not a happy camper. And um, once he got himself kind of situated, I couldn't help but laugh at how, uh, how he was how he appeared and whatnot. And, uh, so compassionate, Scott. (laughs) Right. The compassionate Captain Miller here, you know? So anyway, I went, uh, we, we finished our mission and about another two weeks goes by and, and, uh, we're actually heading back from being out for, uh, for 14 days. And we, there's the the easiest, safest way to travel is through what's called Wadis. Wadis are dry riverbeds. And, and the reason it's the safest place is because today there may be water in, the riverbed, but tomorrow there won't be. And so it's really hard to put an IED in, in a riverbed uh, and be, be effective. So that was the way we traveled probably about 70% of the time when we were over there. And we, when we went out, we went out by a particular um, an area and we knew that there was a wadi on the way back. And so we planned to go that way. Well, when we got to the wadi, it, it was full of water and so we went out and we walked in it, and it was only about uh, six to eight inches deep, and we figured we could uh, we could cross it without a problem. And uh, so we got in, got back in the vehicle, and now it was my turn to be in the turret. And we got about uh, about fifteen twenty feet from the the riverbed, and Sergeant Wayne Cornell gunned it, and he hit the water, and this wall of water came up, and I just looked. I just said, oh, no, and I put my head down, and I got soaked with water. <laughs> this well, is going to payback. Cornell, it sounds like payback. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. Sergeant Cornell was laughing and laughing. I thought he was going to wreck. He was laughing so hard. And uh, I had my Gore-Tex on, so I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't get uh, uh, soaked, per se, but I got wet, you know. And uh, But the thing that, that, that Wayne didn't take into account is it was 32 degrees out at that time, you know. And uh, so we still had another hour and a half before we got back to the fire base. And uh, I got back to the fire base, and I could feel that my mouth wasn't quite right. And uh, and I looked at Wayne, and I said, you know, is, does my mouth look kind of funny? And I thought maybe I'm just chilled from being in the uh, in the turret for so long. And he said, yeah, sir, you you, you do look a little funny. I just think that you uh, you got a little bit of a cold there going. I think you'll be all right. Yeah, I'm going to be all right. I said, all right, well, you got the next two days off. Uh, we haven't, uh, we've been out for 14, so get yourself squared away, go get some chow and, and, um, we'll, we'll take care of the vehicle, uh, when we come back. So he takes off and, uh, I go get a shower and, uh, I get ready to go to bed and, and I get my, I have a laptop computer. I put a movie in to, it was my own personal laptop that I took with me. 
and uh, start watching a movie, fall asleep, and about uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, I wake up, and my eye would not close. My left eye would not close. And I thought I was dreaming. I just said, oh, you know, I'm just really exhausted. So I took my hand, I closed my eyelid, and I put my face on, on that side of the pillow, and uh, and I went back to sleep. Well, about 6 o'clock the next morning, everybody getting up and, and five, five, six o'clock in the morning, people are getting up and moving around, getting ready for the day's event. I was off the next two days, so I was trying to sleep. And um, I kind of rolled over, and one of uh, the guys I was uh, sharing uh, a tent with, uh, his name was uh, Master Sergeant uh, Barentine. He said, sir, sir, are you okay? And I said, yeah, and I sat up, and my, the left side of my face had completely collapsed. I mean, my cheek, my left cheek, cheek was dangling. And my eye would not close. My the side, left side of my mouth would not this, close. This is this is an ugly picture. I mean, one eye <laughs> opened, your mouth hanging down. And, right. Uh, goodness gracious. Right, and and so I had a colonel, a lieutenant colonel, that was sharing the tent with me, and he says, uh, "Captain, you're having a stroke." And I said, "No, I'm not having a stroke, sir." He said, "Captain, don't argue with me. Barrington, take him to the first aid. I, I'm going to follow. I, I need to get dressed." And, and Barrington was already drafted. He said, take him to the first aid right now, right now. And I said, sir, he says, Cam, don't argue with me. Go. And I okay, sir. So we go to the first aid, and I walk in, and the medic said, hey, Captain, sit down, sit down. You're having a stroke. I said, I'm not having a stroke. Everybody calm down, calm down. I, you know, I had dexterity with my fingers. I could walk. I could talk. But, I, I mean, there was something wrong, no question about it. And uh, so he said, okay, he gets on the phone, talks to a special forces doctor. And the doctor says he's having, he's, he's having a, uh, a Bell's palsy moment. And, and that's what the problem is. So a couple of days go by, he'll be okay. So I'm okay, not a problem. So the next day, the colonel sees me. We, we paid our Afghan soldiers cash uh, with uh, their money. Their money's called Dari. And we, uh, we, we had to go get the money from uh, another fire base which, that was eight hours away. And I was the person that was in, in charge of that. And, he, and Colonel came to me and he said, are you okay to go and do this? I said, yeah, sir, I'm fine. Trust me, I'm okay. Not a problem. He said, well, when you're there, I want you to see an actual doctor. There's a doctor at that fire base. I want you to see him and tell him what's going on. He said, okay. So we go up there, and on the drive up there, um, I'm starting to get dizzy um, very easily. Um, think, you know, if you have two people, are, if one person's on my right, another person's on my left, and they were both talking, and I had to talk back and forth. Uh, I would get dizzy going back and forth, just nodding mm. my head back and forth. And things were starting to happen like that, and I, I just thought it was part of the Bell's palsy that it would just be okay, not a problem. Well, I uh, I go to uh, this, this fire base. It's called uh, Kandahar. It's, uh, it was Task Force Phoenix was the fire base. And I go and get all the money and, and sign for it. We had a kind of a lockbox that we kept in our vehicle that was that was chained to the vehicle so somebody couldn't just walk off with it. And I put all the money in the, in the lockbox, and um, I'm walking to the chow hall, and I'm really getting dizzy. I mean, very bad. I'm starting to stagger and I fall down and two soldiers see me and they come over and they're like, sir, sir, you know, are you okay? Are you drunk, sir? Hook me up, sir. Hook me up. Give me some <laughs> I'm laughing. I said, no, I'm not drunk. I, I can't, I'm dizzy. I don't know what's going on. So they took me to the first aid and doctor saw me and he said, you're having a, you're having a stroke. I said, I'm not having a stroke. And he says, have you ever had a stroke before? And I said, no. 
said, well, how do you know you're not having a stroke? I said, but I've seen I've had a lot of people in my family have had strokes. That's another reason I think you're having a stroke. You got, your, your family is, is, is got um, a history of it. Okay, so they medevac me to uh, um, um, Ramstein, Germany. And at Ramstein, Germany, they, they tell me that I'm having a series of small multiple strokes, that it's continuous. And I'm like, oh, great. And so I call Lori and say, hey, look, I'm on my way. Now, Lori's your wife, right? Lori's my wife. I'm on my way. I'm being medevac. I'm, I'm having, uh, I got Bell's palsy, and, and they're making a big deal of it. I'm okay. And so I get to Walter Reed, and I see my wife and my dad and, and Jim and Melanie, which is my, 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 brother, my brother and sister-in-law, which uh, Jim is um, my wife's brother, and uh, they're all there. And um, a couple of days goes by, and they say, okay, um, we think that you came in contact with a nerve agent from the water that, that hit you. Um, we've got a, a problem with uh, nerve agents over there. That's why we're, we're not allowed to drink the water over in Afghanistan except for emergency. Emergency being that we're totally out of water. We have no other way of getting water. Uh, we drank some bottled water, and that's how we brushed our teeth. That's how we washed our hands. Now, we did take showers from um, that they had these, these water purification type things with, with the showers, but we could not uh, drink the water anywhere else outside of bottled water. That was the only thing we were allowed to drink. Mm. If we drank bottled, anything other than bottled water, we got an Article 15, and that was a bad, that's how big a deal it was. So they knew that there was contaminants in the water, but they weren't sure exactly. But with all my reactions, they were saying that I'm having a reaction of, of what would happen with uh, a nerve agent. Wow. And so for uh, two years, I was at Walter Reed as a patient. Actually, two years and three months to the day, uh, I was a patient at Walter Reed. And um, after being there my, my first six months, they, they finally diagnosed me, I'm not making this up, as MUPS. Medically unexplained physical symptoms. And for a year and a half, that's what my diagnosis was. And because they couldn't prove I didn't have any, any, anything in my bloodstream to show that I had um, a nerve agent. So they couldn't, that's why I never got a Purple Heart. So during, the, so during all this time, you really don't know what's happening. Correct. You don't know. Your wife doesn't know what's Correct. going on. And you're just kind of in this limbo as all these doctors are running all these tests and oh, trying to figure out bringing in this specialist and I'm going to call this specialist yes. and all this stuff is happening. And you're they just hoping that. NIH. And on top of that, they call you a mutt. Okay. And <laughs> no, I, I think it was mups. Oh, mups. Okay. I'm mups. Sorry. I'm sorry. Mups. <laughs> okay. So would, would they, would they attribute this? To, is this like a PTSD type of thing or is that what they would call that? No, no. Uh, uh, PTSD is, is um, the post-traumatic stress disorder is um, usually it, it is ma married up with five different types of, or excuse me, five different levels of, of PTSD. And what it is, is it's usually a trauma has happened to an individual, whether it be a physical or psychological. And it, it has caused the, the, the soldier or the person to go through this to have psychological nightmares and, and it, it actually ends up manifesting itself in terrors that people have mostly uh, at night but they also can, can have it throughout the day uh, some, a sound will, will happen that will remind them of their, their issue that they had whatever their terror would be or a smell 
smell is the most common. Uh, mm-hmm. Something you know, burning um, will will cause a person with PTSD to actually all of a sudden re relive the terror that they had uh, wherever that terror was, was at. Um, PTSD is also starting to become noticeable in the United States, not just on the combat zone, but people are, are experiencing it through different terrors that they have here in the United States. Most commonly, though, a soldier will, will, will have uh, a, a, a fellow soldier who is literally blown up beside them or has lost an arm or leg beside them, and now you know they're in the terror of losing their life and possibly losing their body parts, and they, they have actually seen this, and now they relive this kind of thing uh, often, and it affects them differently through anger, through uh, suicide, through um, all kinds of eating disorders, through alcoholism, through drugs, and it's a way for them to escape the terrors that they are dealing with. Does this really affect their relationships as well with just, I mean, the people they love, their friends, family around them? uh, Yes, it does. Uh, A lot of wives uh, cannot deal with it, and they leave their husbands, uh, and vice versa. Women that uh, have experienced the trauma on the battlefield and this could be as simple as uh, a nurse being in the in the in the aid station, and a soldier comes in, and both legs have been blown off. And it's the first time she's ever seen that, and now she's you know terrorized, and this guy's screaming, and she relived that um, for the rest of her life mm-hmm. uh, through different things that pop up that remind her of it. Uh, and it could be you know a guy like I said on the battlefield. It could be um, a number of different ways that people get PTSD. So I was pretty blessed. I didn't have anything like that happen to me when I was in Afghanistan. The worst case with me was what happened to me, you know? Well, we appreciate so much, you know, your sacrifice, you know, being out there and, you know, somewhat a routine, um, drive home that, um, really ended your career in, in, in some ways. Um, but that sacrifice that was made and you continue to make, uh, so we really appreciate you and really the, the tens of thousands of men and women all around the, our, our nation today who are home and trying to acclimate, trying to deal with these different things, and um, people who are still uh, signing up and, and joining our armed forces to defend this great nation. Well, it just goes to show you, you know, this, this PTSD and the trauma that these soldiers face that going back to the story at the beginning with Vietnam and the lieutenant, we talked about the beginning, how, you know, he left the battle, but the battle didn't really leave him. And he had to carry that weight and those memories with him. And uh, it's just that sacrifice that keeps going. The cost of freedom is not just those that pay the ultimate sacrifice. But it's, the cost of freedom is also those that pay a daily sacrifice for their service. And, uh, you know, the hope for us today is the fact that we still have people knowing all this. As this is becoming uh, more uh, um, better understood, PTSD and the effects and the dangers of it. But there's still people today signing up yeah. to serve in our military and to protect. And that speaks so well of us, of who we are as a nation and who we are as a people. We're truly blessed to live in this great nation. We want to say thank you to all who have laid down their lives and have picked them back up to continue a daily sacrifice for our freedom. And we owe a great debt as a nation and as a people. And might we live up to this 
great privilege that we have been given. All right. So that's good. That's a wrap. Scott, thank you very much. That was you've, great. Uh, you've really no got problem. I'm sitting over here shaking, about ready to cry. I appreciate um And, and you sacrificed you your lunch your, break for this interview. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, my friend. His lunch no break problem. is all day long. He has a long, <laughs> all day long lunch break. Uh, but we really appreciate this because this is it just doesn't help us out from that practical perspective. I, I really do believe that you doing this, you're, you've helped, you're going to help a lot of people through this. That's right. And, um, a lot of, you know, even high schoolers and younger kids to understand some of what they go through. Cause this yeah. is a kind of a hard thing right. for some parents to talk about. Sure. And so well, I think this is going to help a lot of people like that. All they see is a poster on the wall or right. a cool movie. And they think I'm signing up for, for the, you know, um, hero stuff and they right. don't even know about yeah. these in their minds old guys who are just hobbling around and they sure. maybe even just you know it's it's one thing to die on the battlefield and go down in a, you know a flame a puff of smoke and and you gave your life boom and it's done it's another thing um to relive that the rest of your life for 40 50 60 years in the future and yeah. there's a lot of people that are quiet yeah. Among us. Yeah. That never share their stories. Right. That because have gone through painful. these things. It's painful. Yeah. Most of your most of your PTSD level fives are quiet people. Hmm. Uh, they 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 are afraid of triggering and um they're, they're they will erupt in anger over something that you and I would just think is, you know, nothing. Yeah. Uh so a lot of them are very, very quiet because of that. Mm-hmm. I remember we were uh, back in California. We were, you know, knocking doors and inviting people to church. And our pastor came across a veteran who was probably in his uh, 60s or 70s and talked to him about coming to church. He he appreciated somebody talking to him. He appreciated that. But he wasn't going to leave his house unless he needed to. Yeah. He just had, he said, he stays home, listens to his music. And that's just, just trying to keep it together yeah. was all he could do. Yeah, you know we've had several people come to our church um, here in D.C. and um, they greeted people and and then when they were being seated and our chairs are a little close together, with a panic look, I've seen them get up and walk out. And on a few occasions, I was able to kind of um, catch them before they were completely gone. I said, "Hey, what what happened? Did, did we say something to offend you?" Uh, are you late for something? You got to go. And on two separate occasions, they said, I just can't deal with this, this crowd, this noise, this little bit of confusion and chaos. This is, uh, this is terrifying me. Mm. And it was just today during this recording that I was able to understand them a lot better. Wow. Yeah. I think, um, go ahead. Well, just a little sidebar is, uh, um, uh, Sergeant Wayne Cornell uh, was a uh, Nebraska National Guard soldier, and um, when I got hurt, you know, I was medevaced, and he he finished his tour and he went back to uh, Nebraska, and he got out of the Nebraska National Guard and joined the the uh, Army and went to uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. He was at Fort Riley, Kansas for three weeks and was deployed to Iraq. Was there for two weeks and was killed by an IED. Mm. Wow. Oh, and, um, 
yeah, I got wind of it, and uh, I went to his funeral. And I'm not exaggerating when I say the entire town of about the size of Clinton lined the streets with signs and people waving as we passed with his with his body in uh, the casket. And his, his body was on a like on a truck bed, so you could see the casket and very uh, very with with the American flag over it. Um, it was just so patriotically um, overwhelming. I mean, I cried the entire time I was there. Yeah, wow. I think of it the. Was awesome. I think of the um, the passage of scripture in Hebrews that there's a cloud of many witnesses uh, in heaven speaking of of those that have sacrificed uh, for faith and for the freedom of spiritual. Uh, religion and and following God, and how it should inspire us to take the next level, take the next step uh, for Christ and with faith. And and what a disgrace it is to see people turn their back on the flag and turn their back on yes. uh, the sacrifice of others and reject yes. um, what has been what has been bought and paid for with blood. Uh, but it's even greater to turn your back on the spiritual sacrifice that has been made, obviously, of course, by Jesus Christ, but then many other saints who have laid down more than we even know about. And I'm just, I'm just so moved today um, thinking about the sacrifice of others and what all has been given for me, for each one of us individually. Of course, it's given for all, but it's it's given for each, and that is that is something we must be able to understand, and we we've, we've got to incorporate into our daily lives, in order to to be worthy of the sacrifice that was paid. Yeah, it's given to all, but has to be individually appreciated. That's it. Wow. I I uh, wish I could was a better speaker, and I wish I was. Uh, more eloquent in the way I spoke, but uh, I really do appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your sacrifice, and we appreciate you being a part of the church, and uh, we just appreciate all that you mean to us, even your wife, even uh, caring about my family. I appreciate uh, just no problem. So, Pastor's going to make fewer jokes about you from the pulpit. I'm going to start, start calling him a mutt. I mean, I'm, it's mutts. <laughs> Uh, wow. You're a mess. There is hope because we are surrounded and blessed by men and women who are willing to continue to pay the price of war. Be sure to listen each week and find more hope from history. Learn more on our website, awakeamericaonline.org. Subscribe, share, consider partnering with us in prayer. <laughs>